Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today I'm talking with Nick Ritchie about his utterly charming new film, 1-800-HOT-NIGHT, which he wrote and directed and which mined some of his wild childhood memories growing up on the edge of trouble in Vancouver, Washington. 1-800-HOT-NIGHT has had an incredible festival run, which included the Heartland International Film Festival, where I first saw it, and the Austin Film Festival, where I first met Nick. If you're a fan of Cobra Kai, and we all are, right? I mean, if you're not, you should, you should go check it out. It's really good. You'll recognize that the star of 1-800-HOT-NIGHT, Dallas Dupree Young, is also one of the stars on the Karate Kid spinoff. He plays Kenny, who of course goes from being bullied to being the bully of Daniel LaRusso's son, Anthony, and there's this whole arc where he joins Cobra. You should, just, you should just go watch the show. Sorry, I'm getting off subject. Dallas's very endearing character in 1-800-HOT-NIGHT is based on Nick, though Nick is white and Dallas is black. We talked about whether that required any changes to the script. We also talked about Nick's creative collaboration in the film with his wife, Ali Ritchie, who is fantastic and just absurdly charismatic in a very complex role. Nick, who is based in Los Angeles, is one of those guys who starts out seeming very interesting and then as you talk with him more, he progressively gets cooler and more interesting. Before this interview started, I noticed that there was some armor behind him and it turns out that in addition to making films, he restores ancient armor and ancient weapons. Uh, we talk about that. We talk about why uh, cold mud is one of the best places that an old sword can be, how he became a filmmaker, and how the time he was forced against his will to hold a scary reptile factored into 1-800-HOT-NIGHT, which you can watch now on demand wherever you like to watch things on demand. And so now, here's Nick Ritchie, writer-director of 1-800-HOT-NIGHT. Nick Ritchie, writer-director of 1-800-HOT-NIGHT. It is so great to have you here with a movie maker and to talk about this film. Can you explain to people what 1-800-HOT-NIGHT is? Yeah, it is a semi-autobiographical feature film that follows one boy as his parents get arrested and he's in danger of going, uh, you know, being taken into custody by CPS. He escapes into the night with his two best friends. They're also, you know, 14 years old. And uh, they're, you know, encountering, you know, fist fights, first kisses, being robbed, all these all these sort of, uh, you know, in some cases, lower class rites of passage um, as he's sort of on the verge of becoming an adult and, and having to take responsibility. And um, throughout the night, he's calling this phone sex operator for advice. So she's so hence the title 1-800-HOT-NIGHT. Uh, she's kind of a, a bit of a twisted fairy godmother for these three boys. <laughs> How much of this happened to you? Quite a bit of it. So there's there's quite a few moments in the film. The 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 inspiration actually I I was writing essays on my childhood for a blog I just called the lower middle class and I was just kind of talking about various subjects just anything that sort of amused me and one of the things that I used to do uh is I would I would pile into a phone booth with my friends and we would call phone sex operators and uh you know we were of course just wanted to you know talk dirty for a second giggle and then run away and uh i was thinking about 
that and how fun that was you know how funny that was and ridiculous uh you know because you'd be up late at night and by the way these ads still exist you think they're gone but they're go, go stay in a hotel and turn on the tv at night and there is still phone sex it's 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 still around and actually oh, i know no I'm yeah yeah <laughs> that's why i do this every week uh <laughs> Actually, during the pandemic, there was a huge boost in phone sex revenue because people were just looking for companionship. Uh, so, you know, as as kids, we would stay up late at night, write down the numbers, and then the next day we would go to steal, you know, steal my mom's credit card or steal some of my friend's mom's credit card, go into a phone booth and 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 go try to get away with phone sex as long as we could. That was the starting point where I thought that's that would be a really fun intro to this movie. And then there were a series of other events uh you know and themes that i was interested in exploring as i was kind of mining my own childhood so there were you know uh, there were events that took place that I, I feel like really launched me into adulthood a little too early you know things i saw or things that happened to me and uh and i i wanted to find or, or some of them to my friends too but and i sort of was experiencing those secondhand uh that i wanted to explore in the film and have you intimately encounter these boys that you know are, are kind of dancing on the knife's edge of of adulthood first childhood but also for, to to be super reductive but somewhat is part of this conversation is like the good path versus the bad path <laughs> um it's not that simple obviously it's, it's very gray but but uh there's an element of that in this that I wanted to explore for myself as a child of how, why some of my friends ended up, in, you know, in prison and, and, and in trouble uh, and, and how I ended up, you know, sort of channeling my challenges into something productive like filmmaking. So you had a pretty tumultuous childhood. It sounds like. Yes. Yes. There was, there was a lot of, of uh, uh, kind of peaks and valleys. My, my parents, um were kind of you know these these renegades you know they ran away from home when they were 15 together they've been together ever since but you know with that comes other other issues in your future you know maybe not as well planned out as you thought you have all of a sudden you're you know in your 20s with three sons you know uh working at bars and uh you know my my mom and dad were were getting into trouble uh you know my dad was dealing with addiction issues at the time and you know, we were, we were struggling in, in so many ways. And I was watching friends get taken into foster care or taken by CPS. I was, I was getting robbed. I was robbing, you know, I was, I was breaking into homes with friends and stealing and, and, you know, I would steal my school clothes from, from, from stores and was getting, you know, arrested or, you know, getting in trouble by the police for malicious mischief or vandalizing a cop car in one instance. <laughs> so there were, yes, there were many, many ups and downs, fights, you know, um, someone looked at me wrong. It was a fist fight. It just, this is what, it, what, what we were doing at the time. And, and then eventually, you know, I, I was able to, you know, sort of find, find a path, but uh, like I said, some of my friends didn't, some of, some of the people I grew up with didn't, some of my family members didn't, you know, they, they ended up in a very dark place. And so I was, I was, um, I was definitely mining all of that, everything I could, you know, for the movie. So how did you get from that to filmmaking? I mean, that sounds like a really tough transition. You know, it was kind of wild. I, 
once I sort of straightened myself out, I was, you know, I was in high school. I was doing well. I was a good student. Um, it's going to go to college. And and I was, and my older brother and I were going to be the first people in our family to go to college, you know, and, and uh, very excited about that. And I was kind of just focused on, I need to make money. Like I've been poor my whole life. I don't want to be poor anymore. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to be like a banker, an investment banker. And next thing I know, I'm like 18 years old, you know, reading the wall street journal, trying to, you know, figure it out, get, getting my series six and 63 licenses, selling, you know, variable products and life insurance by my freshman year of college. And and, but I was always telling stories as a, as a kid, I, I, I would, you know, we never, we, we didn't have like a camcorder or anything, but we had like a little tape deck and I would record like a podcast essentially, you know, or like a radio story of, of, of some adventure. And, um, I, I guess it, maybe it was just always in me to some degree. And then basically my junior year of college or sophomore year of college, they were holding auditions to host the local kids WB hmm. and I was like broke. I was, I was working to, I was working internship plus working at red lobster to pay for college. Um, and on the side I was selling fake IDs. Uh, uh, it's, I think the statute of limitations is over, so I'm safe, but I, I, so I think I could say this now. I was, I was selling a bunch of fake IDs to college students, uh, uh, to help pay tuition, but then I almost got arrested um, I barely, like barely evaded getting arrested on that and was like, oh, I almost ended up in prison. I've got to stop. I got to get a legit, a, you know, another a third job. Um, I went down an audition and got the job as the host of the kids WB. So I was like the guy in between the Pokemon, like next up is this show kids and, uh, for the local, uh, paper. And then I kind of started taking an acting class and, and I, the, I don't know, these things kind of just like barreled into each other. And before I knew it, there was a cast director who was up in, uh, Portland saying like, Hey, you should come to LA and audition for some stuff as an actor. And when I moved down here, uh, I, I, uh, I was auditioning. I was, and, and, you know, and enjoying it, but I really found myself writing more than anything and really loving writing. And so I, I stopped acting, stopped everything and just wrote for years. Um, and, and, I've, I've written, I don't know how many screenplays at this point, uh, quite a few and, and teleplays, uh, just trying to get everything out that I want to get out. And people talk about like writers struggling, like to have a new subject. Like I have too many, like I can't stop vomiting ideas and for better or worse. I don't know if it's, I don't know if people like the ideas, but, uh, I, I've, I've never hit that moment where I'm like, I don't have anything to write about. I just always feel like there's another story to tell. And, I feel so grateful that I found this medium uh, to express myself. In the movie, when your character essentially calls the phone sex operator, he kind of gets good advice. Did you ever get good advice from a phone sex operator? No, no, that was <laughs> that was fabricated. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. The the phone sex operators that I talked to just, uh, you know, we would we would manage to get a, a few lines in of of uh, you know quote unquote dirty talk until they realized uh through the giggles and the laughing that we were kids and would hang up on us <laughs> so <laughs> they're usually short-lived conversations so at some point you meet your wife ali ritchie who becomes yeah. your collaborator she plays well i don't know if there's too much of a spoiler but she plays the phone sex operator yeah yeah she does how do you unpack that like what is yeah. that <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's, 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 I always have envisioned myself with a partner that was creative with me. And Ali and I have this really beautiful synergy where, you know, I can bring ideas to the table. Uh, uh, she's, she's a strong critic. Uh, she goes, you know, she, she will push and, uh, you know, fight for her ideas also. Um, uh, and there's times we butt heads, but I think it creates these projects that are sort of forged in those fires of us, like early, really testing the strength of ideas. And, and I think she's a spectacular actor and she's got a lot to offer or, or we wouldn't be doing this together, you know? Um, and I don't mean that like we wouldn't be together. I just mean, you, you, you can't, you can't like give roles to someone who can't act right. Otherwise you're in trouble. Your independent film will, will, <laughs> will crater. And we started with our first movie, Lolo, where she truly is the lead lead of the film and carries the movie. And she just did such spectacular work in there. And, and she got such great critical acclaim for that film um, from her side of the table that when I, when I was, you know, coming up with the origin of this project and I was like, look, you know, the, the three leads are these boys. They're like 14 year old boys, but I, I have this idea for this phone sex operator. And she was immediately like, yes, I <laughs> I, you know, she, she loves the challenge. She loved the complexity of the character. And we talked a lot about this idea, like, you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but you know, this character isn't necessarily all good, right? She's not all bad either, but there's, so there's things the character does that are, you know, put her intentions into question. And I was kind of explaining that to Allie, like thinking back to my childhood. And I remember this guy, I had um, found a bird with my friend that was injured. And there was a guy in the apartment above us that saw that and was like, Hey, you can bring the bird up to my apartment and i'll help you he was a really nice guy we go up to his apartment he was like feeding the bird crap he's like i know what to do you take crackers and you put it in water and then the bird can eat that and while he was doing that we we robbed him um okay I'm, and, I'm, this is going in a different direction i'm glad you robbed <laughs> yeah no no yeah i'm glad you robbed him well thank you thank you <laughs> thank you tim uh uh but we we he had his wallet out on his coffee table and it's like bowl of cash and we stole his money we went and bought fireworks it was like the second of july fourth of july it was right around the corner and i was explaining that to ali that like i didn't see myself as like a bad person back then i was 13 you know 12 or 13 years old doing these things i just was in a world where resources were limited and so if somebody left their resources out they were mine for the taking in a way yeah. i know that's not a good mentality i don't still have this mentality so so anyone listening if, if we end up you know at a bar together having a drink no i won't steal your wallet uh <laughs> i will just uh I, in fact i'll pay for your drink um i'm still a full, full interview is a sting just so you yeah. know <laughs> get in here boys yeah so fake ids and robbery uh uh but but you know i, I was kind of explaining that in in the context of this ava character this phone sex operator that she is not She's not bad. She's not trying to do bad. She's there's things she does in the film that she just comes from a world where she's she's just taking what's right in front of her because that's what she's had to do to survive. And then when she encounters the pushback, when she encounters the emotional pushback, then she's forced to have like an emotional reckoning, right? And 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 even go through her own coming of age kind of moment. Um, so like going through, i know it's a long-winded answer but going through all that with ali is a is a 
really fantastic experience because she's just so open as a as a actor to those um you know those ideas she's she's very open to the you know understanding the complexity and and i think does a really seamless uh, you know bit of acting where she's able to kind of flow in between someone you like hate like it kind of you know you kind of go bouncing back and forth between these things yeah so no there's a great dramatic tension and when you actually meet her she is a complete person and you kind of get her and also she makes some really good or someone makes some really good wardrobe choices and things like that to really humanize yeah. her and get that she's just kind of at work um i kept thinking of i don't know if you ever saw when aerosmith remade the video or maybe for some reason released a video for sweet emotion like 20 years after the song originally came out in the 90s and it was about a kid calling a phone sex line and he's picturing this like beautiful woman and then he we finally meet her at the end of the video and she's this completely like unglamorous super bored housewife who's like ironing while she talks yeah. to this kid and so i didn't know if you were going to go in that direction if it was going to be like <laughs> some grim thing and you just you just went in a direction that i didn't expect but that felt really grounded and real and i thought she was great yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I know that there was there's something about, you know, the, in the original draft of the script, people were there was some advice of like, well, wait, you know, Allie's actually a good looking person. Like, wouldn't it be better to subvert that expectation? Go, well, actually, I, th I think the expectation now is that, you know, mm -hmm. the phone sex operator is not going to be some sexy person, you know, whatever that means for people. I, I don't, it, to me, it wasn't even about cares about looks who cares anyone can do this job actually it's it's a it's a it's a vocal job it's a storytelling job what yeah. i what i what i was kind of stoked about for for ali is like you said we thought about the wardrobe we thought about the complete character and why she's doing this why she's doing phone sex how she ended up here we we created those backstories together so that you like you said when you meet her she feels three-dimensional not just sort of a disembodied you know voice <laughs> yeah she's not either of the two cartoonish versions of phone sex right at all yeah right. that's um, right your lead you cast this great actor and then you find out very soon after that he is in <laughs> cobra kai and is one yeah. of the stars how did that happen okay so the casting process is done on zoom because it's the middle of the pandemic and you know, the, at first, you know, we this movie was so low budget that that um, couldn't afford a casting director. I didn't even bother reaching out to one. Uh, but we put out casting notices, and there were like forty year old men trying to submit themselves to play fourteen year olds. There was like literally guys with beards like sending in there, and I was like, okay, this can't happen. So, uh, luckily, uh, Jeremy Gordon and and Shana Sherwood and Nicole Doro came on DSG Casting, did a spectacular job. A big shout out to them. And, and I worked with Jeremy Gordon on Lolo, my first film. So we already had a shorthand. Um, they've had some experience in the Nickelodeon world, you know, casting some kid shows. So they, they, they knew, they knew the score on some of these actors, actually, they, they, they were bringing in some really spectacular young men. And the first, the first domino to fall was, was Garrison Machado playing O'Neill. He was so good. I just, I, I loved him. He had, he had all the all the angst that I that I wanted, but still had like a vulnerability that I knew there's a moment where his character has a little bit of a turn at the end. And and I wanted the audience not to hate him, but instead like feel for him, even though he's committing sort of a heinous act. Um and then and then there was Mylan for for Steve. And Mylan just naturally was so funny. He just he like 
So in the original script, actually, Steve and O'Neill are supposed to be brothers. Hmm. But when I was casting it, Mylon was so perfect. And I was like, well, these two boys obviously can't be brothers. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't look anything like. Uh, uh, so I made them cousins and I changed it and then had to change the narrative so that Steve was living with his cousin. Um, and so in his own way, Steve's kind of in his own version of foster care. Like he's like his father, his parents aren't around. He's living with his uncle, um, which I think actually thematically worked out. So the, so now I'm trying to cast Tommy, right? And this is the this is the lead. It's it's very stressful. There's some really good actors coming in, but I hadn't quite felt like we found the kid, you know, the the person that felt. I, I wanted there to be this inherent sweetness to this boy, to this character, because what I wanted the audience to feel is you're watching him go through these things of like you don't want that to crack. You don't want that to break. You're like actually looking at something, even, even if he's stealing, even he's, there's something very pure about Dallas. Um, and so when his audition came through, I was, I was so excited because it, it had been weeks and I just still hadn't felt like we had nailed, nailed it. His first audition, I just thought, oh yeah, there it is. What a great performance. He was just locked in. Now, the audition was tough, by the way. I had this like super emotional scene in there. And, I, and so... Yeah. Um, you know, when you're asking these kids to get there on zoom and, and you're not there as a director to like work with them and redirect in person. Um, and you never know, like maybe they don't want to give that performance in front of their parent who's sitting there behind the cell phone to, you know, so, so he did such a great job. Then we did the callback and, and on zoom, there was like four candidates for each role, but I really, at that point had one of those boys would have had to really prove me wrong for me to change my mind. And then, but together, the three of them just clicked even on zoom. And then, you know, of course uh, you find out that, that, you know, after the fact that Dallas yeah, is, is on Cobra Kai and, and, and Garrison's uh, one of the lead actors on this new show on, on Amazon, that's going to be coming out pretty soon called the power with John Leguizamo and, oh. Uh, I know. Yeah. And, and Mylon, uh, you know, I have no doubt in my mind, it, it'll be the clock's ticking before he's, you know, some lead in a, in a, in a sitcom or something. So, it, you know, I feel very lucky that I got to work with those three boys. Um, well, and, and the young girls too. I mean, Jayla and, and Orly, uh, Chalet and, and um, Maddie, the, the, you know, there's two girls at first and then there's four later that I think, they were all just so spectacular, so natural. It was just, they made my job unbelievably easy, unbelievably easy. When you cast a black actor as a character who, you know, is based on you and you're white, do you have to change anything um, script-wise? I mean, did you make any adjustments at all or was it completely, <clears throat> this is it was, You know, it was kind of interesting. I, the part that made me nervous the part that I really had to like rethink was the dad getting arrested at the beginning mm. uh, and thinking about, so that was like the first thing of thinking about, cause I didn't trust cops as a kid. So I, that didn't change for me. And I, and I know that, you know, young black men have way more reason to not trust cops. And so I, I'm, I, I, I totally understand that that was already built into the narrative <laughs> that Tommy was not going to like stay around for this cop to like help him at the, at the beginning. Um, I, I, I was, I was, I, I didn't want to depict a black father as um, like 
you know, some white stereotype of what, you know, or like what, what white people think of black fathers or something, you know? So I was, I was thinking about that, like, wait, I don't, now I don't want to show this, this man in a bad light, but then I had to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. You know, when I was talking to Dewan who plays Tommy's dad in the movie and he plays the character of Russ and Dewan's a spectacular actor. Very good. And I was just saying to him, like, look, I actually, the character of Russ is not a bad father. He's not, he loves his son. Yeah. And I think this is about what our intention is. And my intention is not to show him actually in a bad light. I think he's a guy who only because I had done this in my life where I fell on hard times and all of a sudden I found myself doing something illegal to make ends meet. Yeah. I didn't see myself as some criminal. I just, you know, turns out I was doing criminal acts. Right. And you can get arrested for those things. Um, so we, we, we talked about that, that, you know, the intention isn't to paint him in a light. That's like, here's a black father getting arrested for drug dealing. Right. It's, 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 it was different than that. It's like, here's a good father. You see him playing with his son and you actually, even when he hands his son a beer, you're like, that wouldn't be a problem in Europe, by the way. Like it's only a problem <laughs> in the U S like seriously, if you hand a 14 year old a beer in Europe, they're like, yeah, you can have a beer. You can have a glass of wine. It's, it's, it's normal. It's not some like crazy. I, I had more friends houses where their dads, not my dad, but there were more dads who gave their kid a beer, like, right. to, like demystify beer. That's right. And you're right. And it, it's borderline, maybe responsible. <laughs> Because yeah. <laughs> otherwise you're sneaking it like I was and you're getting trashed at 14, you know, and just like blacking out. Um, but but I wanted to. So 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 those were things that I started to feel more sensitivity toward. And then there were small changes in the script that I wanted to explore um, the character, you know, thinking about. Even thinking about. There, there was there was moments where. I was even thinking about like the, the CPS worker, you know, and wanting, even saying like, I, I wanted that, I, I wanted to have a, you know, a black actress who, so it wasn't some like white woman saving this like young black, you know, uh, uh, white character, character. you know, um, and I, so th 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 those things did come into consideration. I'm glad they did. And in fact, I was just at the Austin film festival and there was, um, and uh, uh, a writer, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, but there was a, a showrunner writer that was talking about how, you know, when you do write a character of a different race than your own, you really need to start to look at the world through their lens and that'll inform the character. And it really challenged me because I, I, it makes me really want to think of harder on that the next script around, you know, make sure I, I am giving that lens. I, I think this this worked out well. It also ratcheted up the tension when Tommy gets robbed, right? Because now you've got these three white men who are who you don't know what they are really, but you're you you have assumptions based on sort of how they're acting and how they're looking at him. And I think you do naturally feel more nervous. I mean, if you're an empathetic person, I think you're feeling even more frightened that Tommy is in this room with these three white men, partially because he is black. Yeah. And those that reflects, I think, a lot of what we're currently dealing with in society where there's been a major resurgence in overt racism. Um and and uh and that was an interesting, you know, kind of not interesting, but 
Uh, it adds another level for sure. It, it, yes, it added a, an additional level of danger that's inherent for a U.S. audience. I don't know if that translates the same overseas. Like, I don't know if someone in South Korea watches the movie and goes and feels additional tension because of that. But us in the U.S., we know there's additional tension the moment he walks in that door. It's so tense. And then you stuff happens that is <laughs> sort that of happened to the bird situation. The, that, the thing that happens to him happened to you. That that exact thing happened to me. Oh, God, um, these these men. I had a paper route and I was collecting money, and <laughs> I like what? First off, as a like as like a twelve thirteen year old with a paper route, like whose stupid idea was it to give me a a bank bag and go around and collect <laughs> like six hundred dollars worth of of subscriptions in cash in like a Section Eight neighborhood where you know. Six hundred dollars is is a yeah. lot of money, you know, and so I, <laughs> I I was knocking on these guys' door, and, and my manager did tell, "Don't ever go in someone's place. Don't ever go in their apartment." And of course, these guys like, "Just come in, just come in, you know. Don't worry. And why why are you acting weird? Come into my come in, man. You want your money? Come in." Ugh. And I went in, and as soon as I went in, he like locked the door behind me and kind of pushed me in. And there was these other men in there, and a woman. And I knew it. I could smell alcohol. I could smell like I could just I it was just like so anyway, they instead of a snake, they had a giant iguana. And I'd never seen an iguana before, you know. And they put it on like my face and my shoulder. Sure. I know, and it had like you know, these sharp claws. And they robbed me. Um good God. And yeah, and the, the sad part was I remember I was on rollerblades. <laughs> because <laughs> i was like rollerblading to these apartments yeah it was faster than walking so i was i had some of my rollerblades and i remember like s- like stumbling down the staircase when they once they pushed me out of their apartment they have my money now and i'm not even crying at this point like i'm so petrified i i i am like frozen and i remember like clunking down the stairs and starting to kind of like stumble rollerblade away but my legs feel like jello. And then it, it hits me that, and I look down and I've peed my pants. Oh, man. So while I was up there, I, I had peed myself, um, which is probably the only reason they pushed me out of the apartment. They're probably like, oh, this kid's pissing on our floor. Let's get him out of here. So yeah, that, that, that moment actually happened and was, and was super sad because my dad was not home. He wasn't with us at the time. My mom was working at Red Lobster. So I, I just went home. And my older brother's only like a year and a half older than me. So he was like 14 and my younger brother's whatever, like eight. So I just went home to them and just kind of like cried. That was it. There was no like recourse. These guys got away with it. It's not like I just didn't ever knock on that door again. So you knew where they lived. I mean, did you ever think about calling the cops or was it like they would bust me for the time I robbed that guy over the bird? I would have never called the cops for anything. Yeah. I don't trust the cops. I didn't, I didn't want the cops around. Uh, when the cops came around, we all like scattered like water bugs, like, you know, get away, get away. And even if we weren't doing anything, but I just, yeah, no, I never would have called the cops. Um, but I, I, uh, I did tell my mom, but again, yeah, she was like, well, what do you want me to do? I, I'm not going to go to those men, you know, cause you're right. Like, they sound dangerous. So you just, you have to just write it off. You're like, that's a loss of a few hundred dollars. 
it wasn't my whole route at the time, which was good. I think they got, they got like a couple hundred dollars out of me, but, but um, that's it. You just kind of take the L, you know, <laughs> be smarter well, next time. I hope you threw a bag of flaming poop at their door at some point. Something. I, I didn't do anything in, in record. I was honestly so scared of those men. Um, but I finally got to write about it in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so maybe maybe if they watch it they'll remember and they'll feel shame they should feel shame good god i I feel like especially now people need to be super conscious of just like if it feels in any way weird or dicey like messing with a little kid don't do it just just cross the street (laughs) i know i know man believe me I talk to my wife all the time, like, trust your instincts. Like, if the, yeah, if something feels weird, just walk away. Don't care how you're, if you're hurting someone's feelings, just walk away. Yeah. Walk away. I should have walked away that night. Yeah. Yeah. You know what you said about Austin Film Festival? And I saw you at the Austin Film Festival. Um, yeah. And the idea of if you're going to write about someone from another culture, you need to really put yourself in their shoes and really do your research. I was impressed. Um, and we can skip this if you don't like no. it but I was impressed that you were talking to someone about how you'd written a character with a Jamaican patois. And to do that, you didn't just like write it based on watching like Dave Chappelle and half baked or something You like read a lot of books. You did a lot of research to see if you could figure out how the voice sort of should sound. And then you still didn't write the voice. You hired another writer who was very familiar with it to do that dialogue. Can you talk about that process? Yeah, so it was actually, yeah, it was a TV series that I was creating. And um, I, I I was so interested in, I'm very interested in, in colonialism in general and corporate colonialism also. And they got kind of gone hand in hand in a lot of ways. But as multinational corporations, you know, sort of more and more kind of run the economic world, um, they're not so much anchored to a country identity as much as they are just an identity unto themselves. They're kind of their own, own son. Um, I was very interested in, in the colonialism and the corporate colonialism that's taking place in Jamaica, which is sort of one of these like America's playground islands. And yeah, I, I had this TV show concept and absolutely. That was my, my first instinct was I need to read Jamaican novels. Like I need to read what, what are the writers from Jamaica writing about, you know, and, and it just, I, I stumbled upon Marlon James and Nicole Dennis Ben and, and just like some of the best books I've ever read in my life. Like here comes the sun uh, was, you know, uh, broke my heart. Like she, if anyone here is listening and you want to read a spectacular book, Nicole Dennis Ben writes, uh, you know, uh, like a, what feels like a behind the curtain look at, at Jamaica and, and it's basically so, somewhat, somewhat exploring the aftermath of, 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 you know, colonialism and now a country, you know, that's only had its independence since, you know, I think it was 73. Um, um, and in any way, uh, um, I might have got that date wrong, by the way. So please don't hold that against me. I'm just off the top of my head. But but uh, um, so, yeah, so so exploring, exploring, exploring through through literary works. And, and even if they were fictional, like, again, reading Marlon James, uh, um, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, you know, or something, you know, just like um, 
taking in as much as I could. And then, yeah, reaching out to a friend and saying like, who do you know on the Island? Like, I want, I want to talk to somebody there about this idea I have. And I, I got into contact with this, this amazing Jamaican filmmaker named Ross Casa, who, I mean, this guy's been on the ground shooting music videos for Damien Marley when he was like 19 years old, you know, like on a, on a, you know, tiny little consumer camera. Um, he's lives in Kingston. He's, 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 you know, just a, a, a wizard uh, of his own making, you know, uh, as a filmmaker, but it was really beautiful to get to take the concepts that I had and partner with him. Right. So here's someone that like has ownership of the culture that belongs there, that, you know, that, and it was, it was a really cool collaborative process where he was sitting there going like, first off, first thing he's like, dude, I think you're like CIA, bro. You know, too much stuff. Like, <laughs> like, how'd you know this stuff? You know? <laughs> and his wife's laughing. I was like, how's that? he's got the internet, you know, he could look things out, you know, and he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. But, but there was, there was a lot of, again, you know, a couple of years of research and then, uh, but then he still was able to come in and go, man, we wouldn't call this guy that we would call him this. And then this, and, you know, and all of a sudden you were, and he was, you know, he was just adding all this amazing, you know, uh, nuance to the project. And then, yeah, absolutely. You know, what, what the realization was for me is like, I don't have any business trying to write Patois. I'm not going to do it. That would be ridiculous. But you have him, you have this, this amazing, you know, writer, well, his wife's a writer also, but like, you know, you have these people that can do that with you and that can, um, and by the way, what a fun way to collaborate, you know, with, with someone from another culture. Um, and I think the cool thing, you know, that, that I guess I, maybe the, the biggest takeaway for me, even though the show didn't make it was. Casa once called me after we had a meeting with Netflix and Netflix passed. Um, and he was just, he just said, I just want to say thank you for reaching out to me in the first place. It's the first time I've had a real seat at the table. When films come to the Caribbean, the only jobs we get to have are, you know, low level uh, cooking food, PAs, you know, janitorial stuff you know like he, he was basically saying you know no one's ever come to me as like it and say like i want you in as an equal i want you to be an executive producer i want you to be a writer i want you to direct i want you know take a higher level position and it was you know because there's big movies that go and shoot in jamaica you know i think the uh the latest james bond you know film was there and, and it's a good point he's making which is like so who's if you're going to come here like you're not seeking out like you, 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 are, are, you know, so here we were trying to create a TV series where we would, where the TV series would have actual Jamaican writing staff and Jamaican directors and Jamaican actors. We just couldn't get it off the ground. I think, you know, I, part of it, it, maybe I'm not the right person to create that show. Um, I, I was obviously trying to surround myself with the right people to, to, uh, so that I wouldn't be the obstacle. Um, and so maybe it's going to have a life with someone else or maybe it'll, it'll have a life in the future. Uh, but, but that was a, that was a big learning process and I'm still very close with Casa and, and, uh, and I, and I learned a lot and, and we'll take that information forward, particularly when writing, you know, thinking about a, a story with a different culture. Cause I do think writers should not limit themselves to writing stories about their own culture. I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the right direction to go uh, in the, in the creative world, but I do think, you you have to, you know, you have to, to tread correctly 
and and I think we all know what that is, right? It's 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 me not writing patois. <laughs> That's not that you know you know it, it's it's finding the 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 storyteller in Jamaica that believes in the idea and then wants to partner on it and and then i'm just a co-creator i'm a co you know and that's fun and i and i and i love that collaboration i'll I'll do that every day if you have a second i would just love to ask we chatted about this before we started recording you have a microscope behind you for a shocking reason um can you talk about your work and is it metallurgy would that be the right (laughs) it's actually not so i'm a i'm a preservation specialist for ancient arms and armor um so i i do uh restorations and and preservation of ancient artifacts uh for private collectors and museums so i today will be working on a 15th century saber uh that, that needs to be uh you know needs to be cleaned up uh i've worked on everything from you know, third century BC Roman Calvary face masks with bronze disease that need to be cleaned up to, yeah, you know, 15th, 16th century swords that were found at the bottom of a river that need to be. So basically, you know, when a sword comes out of the a sword is at the bottom of a river, it's concealed in mud and rock. And um, so it's kind of safe, it's sort of like a, um, safe environment for the object believe it or not it's once you remove it and you expose it to oxygen that the salt and the rust starts to activate and so you basically have this this time frame that this ticking clock where you want to get that sword to someone like myself who can you know clean it remove the uh, the accretions you know and then use various techniques to essentially protect it from humidity and from that rust, you know, reactivating so that the sword can have a life uh, behind glass and tell its story. A lot of these, a lot of these objects um, are there are standalone artwork. I mean, it's they're pieces of art. I've got I've seen Viking axe heads that are, are so beautiful, so ornate that they would just blow your mind. Um, and and I've seen you know Papua New Guinea war shields that are are it's essentially a painting it's just a canvas <laughs> you know it just happened to be used for battle but um <laughs> it's it's a it's a really cool uh, I started doing it about uh, eleven years ago and I apprenticed with the the keeper of arms from the Tower of London so I, I had probably the foremost authority in in the in the game uh, <laughs> teaching me how you know his techniques and. Um, and for me, it's like a, a, a way to, again, I just, I love storytelling. I, I, I love storytelling. And I think that there's stories behind these ancient cultures that exist in their artifacts and in, in what remains. And in a way, I feel like I'm keeping those stories alive by preserving those artifacts. So there's a, there's an element to me that's, um, I don't know, feels like a beautiful uh, kind of thing I do on the side. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha